The most important reason behind this uh, is Estonia's recognition that uh, Russian aggression is not just targeting Ukraine, it's targeting all of us. Hello everybody, you are listening to the podcast Ukraine Decoded. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. My guest today is from Estonia and his name is Mart Kultkep. He is an associate professor of Scandinavian history and politics at the University College London in the United Kingdom. Mr. Kultkep kindly agreed to explain for my podcast the historical reasons why Finland and Sweden are joining NATO only now. We will also talk about the reasons behind the huge support of Ukraine from Estonia and the Baltic countries during the war against Putin's Russia. Mart, welcome to my podcast. My first question is about Sweden and Finland, which are currently joining NATO. This process is expected to be finalized by the end of this year. We all know that those two countries were neutral after Second World War and didn't join NATO during the entire Cold War. I heard that this is because the Soviet Union threatened Finland and Sweden with military action if they dare to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. How do you see all of this as a historian? Well, first of all, I should say it was slightly more complicated than Europe preventing them uh, joining NATO during the Cold War, because we also need to take into account the various different experiences the Scandinavian states had during the Second World War and the way that those informed their uh, security policy choices in the aftermath of the war. Finland was attacked by the Soviet Union in 1939 in the Winter War, which they, in the end, were defeated in. Finland still, even though it lost territory, it remained independent, and it was indeed able to, to continue fighting after the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, and now as an ally of Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union. In this continuation war, it was also defeated. But again, uh, it was able to retain its independence, uh, go on existing as an independent country, and crucially, not as a vassal of the Soviet Union, the same way that happened to Eastern European countries that were subjugated by the Red Army. So Finland, after it, its very traumatic experience of the Second World War, uh, was essentially forced to sign a treaty of uh, friendship and mutual assistance um, with the Soviet Union in uh, 1948. And this then stipulated that Finland was to remain uh, neutral in uh, any war between the Soviet Union and a uh, third country. So Finland was kind of uh, left outside of uh, North Atlantic uh, military cooperation, it, but it was sort of uh, quasi-allied with the Soviet Union, could say. And even though Finland maintained, officially speaking, a kind of rhetoric about its neutrality, uh, it uh, actually, of course, uh, wasn't fully uh, neutral either. Finnish politics uh, was in uh, certain ways dominated uh, by the Kremlin. The long-standing Finnish president, Urho Kaleva Kekkonen, was uh, often the kind of link between Moscow and Finland. What are the historical reasons for Sweden to join NATO? Sweden was a different case because uh, Sweden had successfully remained neutral in the Second World War. They hadn't fought on either side. And uh, in the Swedish case, its neutrality policy uh, rarely paid off. Uh, remained neutral until the end of it. Uh, Switzerland was another example. 
So by now, Sweden has remained outside of all wars since uh, 1814, so for more than 200 uh, years. And this has created a policy tradition in, in, in Sweden that uh, prefers neutrality and non-alignment as the first option before uh, considering. Now, maybe this is changing. Consciously, Sweden chose not to join uh, NATO when uh, NATO was created. And this was a big difference between Sweden and uh, close neighbors, uh, Norway and Denmark, and also Iceland, who indeed ended up uh, being uh, founding members uh, of uh, NATO. Scandinavia as a whole fragmented uh, in the very beginning of the Cold War in terms of its um, uh, security. Finland went on existing as a kind of quasi-Soviet ally. Sweden uh, was neutral, a staunch neutral, the most neutral of them all. And then Denmark and Norway became NATO member states. But even they didn't become fully committed NATO member states because early on, both of them decided that they would not allow NATO bases in their territory. This was important uh, because they had just been occupied by a foreign power. And uh, Iceland was different in that sense, that Iceland indeed retained a large American airbase. And this then subsequently became uh, one of the major uh, dividing issues in uh, Icelandic politics. Also, Norway demilitarized the border area uh, closest uh, to uh, Russia. Norway was one of the uh, NATO member states, uh, indeed, I think, probably the only one that had, had land border with uh, Russia right from the beginning. And it decided to voluntarily demilitarize it to avoid any provocations. They also later on decided to not to have any NATO nuclear weapons uh, in their territory. So even Denmark and Norway, they were less than fully committed to NATO members. Throughout the decades of the Cold War, the Scandinavian region uh, and the Baltic Sea region, maybe uh, to some extent, it remained fairly stable, which is quite remarkable because, of course, the Iron Curtain went right through the Baltic Sea uh, region. Uh, Estonia, Latvia and uh, Lithuania, uh, they were very much integrated uh, into uh, the uh, USSR. This is quite remarkable compared to how much more volatile the situation seems to be in Germany. So in that sense, uh, the uh, Baltic Sea region was maybe more of a success story. But it also left a legacy because uh, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed, all of those security policies suddenly became obsolete. Finland, of course, uh, it had no reason to continue to adhere to this uh, treaty of uh, friendship and mutual um, uh, cooperation that it had with the Soviet Union. And Sweden suddenly had nothing left to be neutral about. There was no reason for it to try to play this role of being between two superpower blocks when one of them no longer existed. But by that point in time, I think it's probably fair to say that the Swedish and the Finnish electorates, they had gotten used to the idea of neutrality. Neutrality is uh, usually a very easy uh, idea to sell to the people because I think uh, most people have naturally isolationist inclinations. They don't want to get involved in uh, conflicts happening outside of their own borders. And uh, that's what neutrality is, the right to remain uh, neutral and not get involved in a war that you feel doesn't concern uh, you. This very attractive idea then by, by that point in time had been very much internalized by people in, in, in Sweden and Finland. And also the role of NATO itself uh, was sort of becoming questionable. Many people felt it's obsolete. Uh, why does it even exist if its uh, main adversary is uh, no longer uh, there? And uh, therefore, it was even more difficult to explain uh, to 
the people why they would now need to support NATO members. Mr. Kultkap, uh, you're originally from Estonia. I was always wondering why the Baltic countries had managed to join the European Union and NATO earlier than Ukraine. They also were under Soviet occupation and were parts of the Soviet Union. What are the historical reasons that they are already in Europe and protected, but Ukraine is still not? It's probably a combination of several different factors. Uh, one of them is historical. Uh, the try to become uh, independent in the aftermath uh, or the uh, final stage of the First World War. The three Baltic states actually succeeded to fight the Soviets and retain independence for 20 years. This, uh, I think, Uh, legitimated their independence and membership in the international community. So Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, they had been recognized officially by other states, including uh, Western states. Uh, in the interwar period, uh, they had been members uh, of the League of Nations in the 1920s and uh, 30s. So I think uh, even though Western states already back then didn't really believe in that their independence would be sustainable. They still expected that Russia at one point become stronger and would try to take back their territories. Indeed, actually uh, happened in uh, 1939 to 1940. There was still a kind of aura of legitimacy, I think, uh, that uh, they had that ended up uh, benefiting them uh, later. Uh, during the period of the, of the Soviet occupation of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, geography played an important role as well. Even though they were parts of the Soviet Union, they were still westernmost parts of the Soviet Union. In some ways, they had access to the West that was uh, denied uh, to other areas. In Estonia, for example, and this is uh, often mentioned, uh, it was possible to watch Finnish TV. And uh, this was a kind of luxury that was just completely unavailable to the rest of the Soviet Union. And it was quite important, even though you know Finnish TV wasn't uh, anything special, it still had those images of uh, Western affluence that were communicated to Estonians. You could watch TV commercials telling you what was available in Western supermarkets. And this had a lot of impact on people's imagination, not to speak of like, Western soap operas and so on. Furthermore, many people from the Baltics had escaped to the West in uh, 1944 as uh, the German front was collapsing and the uh, second Soviet occupation of the Baltic states was about to begin. So many people who knew what fate would await them uh, because they had seen the deportations in 1940 uh, would uh, try to uh, escape across the Baltic Sea, uh, either to Finland and further to the West or directly to Sweden and many of them further on to Canada, the United States and uh, elsewhere. So So many Estonian families, for example, and Latvian and, and Lithuanian as well, ended up with relatives uh, living abroad, which was, again, an important connection to the free world that they had throughout the uh, Soviet period. I believe that from the 1960s onwards, it was uh, also possible to visit uh, for those uh, foreign relatives and this facilitated the kind of cultural interchange that was quite important. And now, in the last days of the Soviet Union, Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian independence uh, was restored. I think they also had a kind of sense of purpose that was clearer than in uh, many other parts of the former Soviet Union, because they didn't become independent for the first time. They restored the independence that they had already had in the 1920s and 1930s. So they had a clear idea, in a way, of what they wanted to become. And uh, they were quite determined from the outset to just completely 
get rid of the Soviet legacy and leave it behind and not engage with it and uh, join as many Western clubs and nations as quickly as possible. And still, it was very hard for them. It still took a long time. The Baltic states ended up joining in 2004. And uh, this was probably the crucial window of opportunity. Russian aggression against Georgia was just a few years away. Uh, this was the time, uh, perhaps, when uh, Europe was feeling most pacific. At the same time, the uh, uh, United States was prepared to support uh, membership because they had joined the war in Iraq. So this was a kind of quid pro quo approach. Of course, Ukraine was doing the same thing and for a similar reason, sending uh, expeditionary forces to fight in American wars. And one final thing I should say, the Baltic states are small. And uh, this is something that uh, works against them in many ways, but sometimes also works in their favor. In the West, they have often been seen as a kind of a manageable property, something that is easy to swallow, something that could be used as a test case uh, for various initiatives. And I think they have benefited from that as well. When we explore in my podcast the reasons for today's Russian war against Ukraine, the entire post-Soviet era is ending in front of our eyes. Recently, three significant historical persons passed away. The first leaders of independent Belarus and Ukraine, Stanislav Shushkevich and Leonid Kravchuk, and also Mikhail Gorbachev died. He ended the Cold War but tried to save the Soviet Union from collapse. Mr. Kultkep, what do you think about the legacy of Gorbachev for Baltic countries? As we know, he sent Soviet forces to Lithuania and Latvia, and those forces killed freedom protesters on the streets. Obviously, he didn't succeed in doing what he was trying to do, which was to reform the Soviet Union. But he was, in, in, in some ways, a kind of better option for the collapse of the Soviet Union than a more hardline uh, leader. It's sometimes said that uh, Gorbachev didn't have this killer instinct uh, that uh, many other Soviet leaders uh, had had, that he generally preferred peaceful solutions. But at the same time, we also need to take into account that he also had to deal with a very influential conservative uh, group amongst the Soviet leadership. And over time, sometimes he was able to impose his will on them, and sometimes they would grow more influential. And when it comes to the Baltic states, we can definitely see those uh, fluctuations. Uh, the Baltics were early to take advantage of Gorbachev's uh, new thinking and uh, those uh, new policy initiatives that he brought in, Perestroika and Glasnost and so on. But one thing that Gorbachev hadn't realized uh, was that the Baltic states, you know, wanting to uh, restore their independence, would use those initiatives in a cynical way. Early on, they would use them against uh, their own local Communist Party leadership uh, that was mainly composed of hardliners. They would take the side of Gorbachev against those uh, local uh, communist leaders, uh, and, and very successfully, uh, I would say. And over time, their confidence would grow. They would organize mass demonstrations, like the impressive Baltic Way demonstration in 1989, where uh, people across the three Baltic states would uh, join hands, demanding the uh, recognition of the uh, secret additional protocol of the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty, by which uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union divided up Eastern Europe between them. Gorbachev, throughout this process, grew more and more confused, I feel. He didn't know what to do about the Baltic nationalists. He, he was afraid of letting them go, but also to encourage others. And uh, he was also afraid that uh, suppressing their uh, attempts at uh, liberating themselves would come with costs in terms of sort of his greater uh, foreign policy uh, aims. And this is indeed what happened when he tried to violently crack down in uh, Vilnius and uh, Riga. 
In the end, of course, he was a tragic figure in some ways. He ended up being sidelined. Yeltsin, of course, was in some ways just as important as Gorbachev was in collapsing the Soviet Union. And he also initially allied himself with the Baltic liberation activists. And then later on, of course, the Baltics and Russia diverged again quite soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union. His legacy is a complicated one. Uh, he played a positive role, but also a negative role. In the end, I feel uh, like different people with different points of view will probably go on judging him in uh, very different, uh, sometimes completely contradictory ways. Estonia is one of the most vocal Ukraine supporters during this Russian invasion. By September 2022, this small Baltic country has provided Ukraine with a total of 250 million euros in military aid. In comparison to other countries, Estonia is a leader in terms of its gross domestic product that is directed to Ukraine. Mr. Kultkep, why Estonians help Ukrainians so much? According to some measurements, Estonia is maybe doing even more than uh, any other country. If we look at uh, you know uh, GDP and, uh, and and so on, Estonia is also uh, doing quite a lot privately. Uh, so there are many private initiatives to uh, help the refugees uh, or to uh, help the Ukrainian armed forces. So this is in addition to the uh, official state-mandated uh, uh, assistance. I'd say the most important reason behind this uh, is Estonia's recognition that uh, Russian aggression is not just targeting Ukraine, it's targeting all of us. It's uh, by no means you know, predetermined that it would be uh, Ukraine that's uh, under attack and that's experiencing the uh, Russian aggression uh, most uh, directly. The historical experience of the Baltic states uh, has shown that uh, just as easily it could have been them. If it wasn't the Ukrainian cities and hospitals and schools and kindergartens targeted by Russian missile attacks, uh, those uh, same attacks would be targeting similar uh, infrastructure in, in the Baltics or elsewhere in uh, Eastern Europe. People in the Baltic states helping Ukraine, uh, not just as some kind of a humanitarian initiative, uh, which is how it's often perceived in Western Europe. Uh, they do it because they see the security side of it uh, very acutely and uh, they realize that uh, any Russian weapons destroyed in Ukraine now are Russian weapons that do not have to uh, be destroyed uh, in the Baltics. Uh, so I think it's this recognition that Ukraine is fighting for all of us uh, that's uh, really informing the significant level of assistance uh, that they are providing. And uh, while Western Europeans, you know, often feel like they are thanks by Ukraine or that their level of uh, support would fluctuate because of what Ukraine is doing or what it's not doing. I don't think this is uh, the case in the Baltics. I think uh, this uh, solidarity uh, runs uh, much deeper. And it will be interesting to see what kind of effects it is going to have going forward. After the war, uh, I think this uh, won't be forgotten. Uh, many Ukrainian refugees that have spent time in the Baltics or also in Poland, they would return uh, to their homes with the cultural knowledge that they bring with them, sometimes also speaking the languages, retaining the personal contacts that they uh, acquired. So I think this is uh, going to be a starting point for uh, Eastern European solidarity more broadly becoming an important factor in European politics and the kind of counterweight to the predominance of uh, Western Europe that we have seen for such a long time. In the 1990s and thereafter, the uh, Eastern European state that managed to get access to those uh, Western clubs like the EU and NATO 
uh, they always looked up to uh, the Western states. They were always rule takers. And I think uh, to some extent, uh, this relationship is going to become uh, more equal uh, now uh, because uh, they have Ukraine on their side. My last question in this podcast episode is traditional. How this Russian war against Ukraine may end? Your opinion, Mr. Kultkep? Uh, I was convinced that Russia would lose uh, even before the war began. And I haven't changed my opinion at all. I think uh, Russia will be defeated in uh, many ways. It already has been defeated. I can't see how it would produce a victory that would be a meaningful victory in terms of you know, being somehow better off than it was before the war. Uh, I think uh, Russia, strategically speaking, has already been uh, defeated. The only question is, you know, will Ukraine win or will Ukraine improve its position against Russia or will it suffer? the same fate in some ways and end up in some kind of a frozen conflict. Even if Russian defeat is a certainty, as I believe, it's uh, not clear when exactly it would happen and uh, how long the agony would be prolonged before the final collapse. I also think that Putin's regime will be uh, unable to withstand Russian uh, defeat. It will mean its end. Putin's personal political fate, I think, is going to be grim. Now, what exactly is going to replace it? Because the people who pose the greatest danger to Putin's regime today are not the liberals. It's the hardline nationalists who uh, blame him personally for having mismanaged the war effort. Uh, so I think uh, what's quite likely is that we at some point will see a rerun of the August 1991 coup attempt uh, with nationalist hardliners trying to take over. And as we know, in August 1991, they failed because people would come to the street and they had a popular leader, Boris Yeltsin, who could provide a kind of inspiring leadership for the people to oust the coup makers. Whether this would happen again, I'm quite skeptical about it. I just don't see the sort of civic activism in Russia today. I think the situation is highly unstable in Russia now. Tactical defeats uh, mounting, as they recently have been uh, with the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think uh, Putin's position is going to grow more and more uh, precarious. Uh, one thing I should say, though, about this is that uh, when exactly the collapse comes uh, will be uh, very unpredictable. This is uh, just as with the collapse of the Soviet Union up until the last moment, uh, most people would you know, uh, go on believing that this would uh, either ever happen or happen anytime soon. Political analysts uh, back in uh, 1990 would uh, predict uh, some kind of a long drawn out decline or they would believe that, uh, well, you know, this is just a flip on the radar. The Soviet Union will still rise again uh, with uh, new and energetic leadership and constitution. All of this was wrong. When the collapse happens, it happens unexpectedly, it happens suddenly. And uh, I think this is how it's going to be this time around. At this moment, I am ending this episode of my foreign policy podcast Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko and my guest today was a historian and political scientist from Estonia, Mart Kultkep. He is an assistant professor at University College London in the UK. Mr. Kultkep, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Please support my podcast by donating to my PayPal. It's easy. You can press the PayPal link in the description of this episode. I say goodbye and so long.